0: Got a great to play in nice oh, <laughs> you ever a lady? Uh, we're a technical problem. We... Yeah. <laughs> I swear? <laughs> Shit! Oh yeah. Welcome to Crunch and Roll, a podcast about the side of the radio industry that most people never hear about, featuring some of its most interesting characters. My name is John Fox, but you may be thinking, hang on, what qualifies you to present Crunch and Roll? Well, I worked my way through hospital and student radio, presented commercial breakfast shows all over England, and even had a bash at presenting the BBC. So it's safe to say that I know my Omnia from my Optimod. Now, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty nervous ahead of talking to today's guest. He was one of the most powerful people in the radio industry from the 90s until the mid-2010s, and also, I guess, my boss's boss's boss for a while as well. I mean, essentially, he was the big cheese. Now, he runs his business consultancy firm and no longer works in radio, so why was I so nervous? Well, he was also one of those much-referenced bloody Aussies that so many of our guests have spoken about. Had he ever heard? This could have got awkward. But what transpired was a fascinating and enlightening chat with a man who lived and breathed radio for decades. He spoke about his early days in Australian radio, gave us a peek behind the scenes of the capital GWR merger... And yes, I did ask him about how he felt about the bloody Aussie thing. If you'd like to take Dirk up on his amazingly kind offer of life after radio coaching, then contact details are in the podcast notes. Before we start, another reminder that if you enjoy the podcast and you are a regular listener, we'd be grateful if you could support us on Ko-fi. Just go to ko-fi.com slash and roll. And thanks to everybody who's helped us recently, including some very generous support from Robin Kotal and Robin Banks. Robin Banks. Never heard of him. Okay, it's the governor. Let's crunch and roll. Oh, yeah. Dirk, how are you?
1: Very well. <laughs> I'm sitting here in anticipation, John. Are you nervous? Well, I, I, probably, yeah. Well, nervous is, I don't know if it's the right word, but... Um, um, wondering, I'm curious, John, I'm curious. And because we've talked before about doing something and I've heard plenty of guys on, lots of people who I've worked with in a past life. I didn't think it'd be very interesting to have me on because most of the people that you've had on are presenters or people who've been sort of in the public eye.
0: It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, and I have been chasing you for some time, and you've got a very busy diary, so I genuinely, myself and Simon, really appreciate your time this evening. I think it's interesting because we've had a couple of programmers, um, PD level, on Crunch and Roll with their episode, but you, two things. Firstly, um, one of the biggest names in UK radio, you don't need to be shy about that, Dirk, and secondly, you you weren't just the PD; you were the governor. I mean, you were you were right at the top. So, I, I guess with with that in mind, does that give you any nerves? That you know, there will be. Some, I mean, I said this to to, to Dick Stone. You know, there will be people listening to his episode that he's had to fire, and it's the same for you. Is that is that one of the reasons why perhaps you are not not
1: really, because I've had loads of people over the last few years. Um, I did an episode with David Lloyd and we had talked about stuff in life and you know, David Lloyd's conversations, and we had different and I talked about things and I and a whole bunch of people came out of the woodwork that did leave when I was around um, and said I hadn't realized and wow, and I gotta say, um, as much as I didn't like it at the time, I get it, and I've worked in other places and I could see what you you know, and so there's you know, some people will go. He's a dodgy guy. He's got a funny. He's got a dodgy accent, and you know those bastard Australians and all that <laughs> stuff. Um, however, I got to say that there's more that would go. You know, with hindsight, a little bit of maturity, a few more grey hairs, a few more baldy heads. You know, I, I get it, um, and and I've also uh, a part of that as well of you know my own learning about. Um, Life of the universe can go. Mm, that one didn't work. I tried this, um, and so um, there's a bit of all of us have got a little older and wiser. So I, I'm not nervous about that so much as I just don't. I mean, Richard Park is the god of radio, um, I, and I just don't. I don't see it, and it was very generous, and I appreciate it. My ego loves you for it, but um, it doesn't fit with my identity of myself. But I like it, and please say more of it because it's really good for me. <laughs> but I don't; uh, it doesn't sit with me like that. And those people who know me quite well would go, "Yeah, that makes sense." And when I think about where I've come from, um, and where I got to, and how it all, you know, how it all ended in terms of radio, and how a new phase started. But you know, I meet you, and and I've heard you meet lots of people who. I know, but I didn't get a chance to talk to. And I watch in various phases up there, you know, whether it's on whatever social media platform and see them work, go, oh, it's quite cool. So I'm pretty relaxed about that because I quite like people. And most people are actually pretty generous about the time that they had, even if it ended in a way that wasn't what we would have liked at the time.
0: Look, let's go right back to the start, Doug, because you, you have got a CV in presenting, which I think is is fascinating. So... Let's go right back to the start. You you were born in Tasmania.
1: I was, yeah. I really hope you don't have a bloody copy of a the tape. There's only one person I know who's got a copy of that, and he better not have shared it with you. <laughs> so, um, yes, I did. I um, I uh, was born in Tasmania, yep.
0: And what was the, the radio scene like in Tasmania?
1: Two stations, uh, you know, sort of a, an ABC, the equivalent of the BBC, and one local commercial station. And like... Uh, New Zealand, Canada, and the U.S., um, Australia had um, less public media, and so therefore it was a probably underfunded public media. Um, station in in lots of small markets because it's a big geographic territory. So each area had the equivalent of a BBC local radio station, maybe if you're lucky some national, but it depended on the transmission and one local commercial station. And if you go, then that's the country radio. So the equivalent of Barnstable or somewhere like that. And then you get to a a sort of place like um, Bath um, and then you start, might get two stations, And then you get to somewhere like a a Leeds or a Bristol or somewhere like that. And then you start to get, maybe you get two um, BBC stations, more nationals, but you at max get um, one commercial station, maybe, maybe two. And then you get to the the big markets like London, Birmingham, Glasgow, and then you've got, you know proper, what they call metropolitan radio. So radio there was, the difference was that in in smaller markets, commercial radio, where there were two stations, really fought hard. It was one successful one and one mediocre one, because that's just the way brands sort of worked. And you had to work really hard to win audiences from the commercial competitor and then make money from them, which is why a lot of Australians came over to this side of the world when when commercial radio liberalised. Because, you know, they went from being run by the good and great, this side of the world, to companies buying them and trying to make money out of them.
0: Now, is it true that before, I, I, I want to get on to when your passion for radio started, but you, you were a trainee carpenter, is that
1: true? Very good research. I, did, um, I left school at 16. My parents were Dutch migrants into Australia, hence the name Dirk. I could tell you my original surname was not Anthony. That was my second name, but I'll save that for later. That's a segue to keep people listening. I love it. <laughs> um, you can ask me that towards the end. Uh, what? And so I, I left school at 16. Um, just for those listening, John is now writing that down so he doesn't forget to yes, ask what my surname is. <laughs> um, but I left school at 16 you know, you're a you're a migrant family. You're a you know you trades. My dad was an electrician. Well, you better get a trade, son. So I didn't do terribly well in my schooling. So I I went and did an apprenticeship as a carpenter, and I would credit that as being probably the best education I had for programming radio stations, because I was standing on roofs of houses, putting roofing iron down, roofing down on a house, or working inside putting kitchens in, or hanging doors. And 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 the and the guys would be on a site of say twelve sixteen houses, and there'd be a radio right in the middle, playing. And and the guys and and the very beginning of digital radio. Nick Piggott and I said, this this digital radio is going to have screens. What are we going to put on the screen? Because you know GWR then was quite advanced in digital radio early days. I said, you know what? I remember being on a building site, and people used to get really annoyed when the DJ Nip didn't say the name of the song. So why don't we put what's playing now, what's playing next? And that's where the beginning of those scrolling things, what's playing now, what's playing next. And that was a direct result of watching people listen to radio on a building site.
0: So at what point did you get bitten by the radio bug?
1: My first year as an apprentice carpenter, by week three, I realized this was a dumb idea and I hated that job. And I thought, this is just awful. And um, my dad said, well, you've got to get a trade, son, so you've got to wait till you get your ticket, your certificate to say that you're a qualified tradesperson. That was four years. Anyway, um, my sister, who was a hairdresser, you get in the picture, you know, yeah. um, she was cutting the hair of a guy who um, was a DJ in a nightclub and in this little town of 25,000 people. And this guy said, I'm going to go and get married. Um, I need someone to cover my DJ shift. And literally, it was in a pub. And she said, oh, my brother wants to be that. Because my dad had set up a turntable disc and a mixer and stuff in my bedroom when I was 14. So I, I had the bug of music and I was doing that sort of stuff. And so she said, oh, this guy wants you to come down and have a go. So I went down and had a go. Long story short, I covered his two weeks for his his honeymoon. And when he came back, the pub owner said, mm, I think Dirk might should stay. And um, so I ended up getting the gig and stayed and that was the bug I mean I had I had the idea of loving music and playing music in my bedroom with with two turntables and a mixer because my dad was in that sort of audio he was an audiophile but actually turning that into something that could be a profession was just way out you know this is country country Australia and that opportunity presented itself by my sister cutting this guy's hair and I just played the songs that people liked and that worked so bar, the bar manager was happy, people were dancing, drinking more alcohol, and I was playing whatever I wanted, so it was good.
0: Is it true that you've also got your sister to thank for, for eventually getting into professional radio? Not as a presenter, but just getting in?
1: Yeah, that's the other sister. You, Your research is excellent. That's <laughs> so good. That was my Doug, other... Uh, Doug, you,
0: I, there was no way I was going to cock this one up.
1: <laughs> yeah. John, that's very good. <laughs> You and Simon are very good. Um, so that was my younger sister who was dating a station manager. Purely coincidental. A town of twenty five thousand people. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> uh, and and he then said, uh, "Well, if you really want to get into radio, why don't you come along and um, do some bits and pieces?" And I did some bits and pieces. And he said, oh, "There's a job going at Seven LA in System, which is the city down the road, and it's a it's a bit like sort of being. You know, I live just outside of Oxford." It's like saying there's a there's a job going in Birmingham, and that's you know reasonably big um compared to Oxford. And um, but you gotta write commercials. I'm not gonna go and write commercials. I'm a DJ in a nightclub, I'm kind of cool. Um, you know, so I progressed to a bigger nightclub in this town and I was doing okay. I was making some money and and you know, I was I was what I would have considered successful and uh, writing commercials. So um He said, well, if you really want to get into radio, mate, you know, um, pull your head in and go and see them. So I went and saw them and um, I started writing commercials as a way of getting into radio. And they said, oh, you can do one night shift a week. So I started writing commercials.
0: Can, Can you remember any of those commercials? Were they as cheesy as they were in the UK?
1: Yeah, they're all pretty horrible, mostly car yards um, and you intro and then the car yard owner would say something, and which of course didn't happen here so much, thank goodness. I mean, the UK were much more advanced in the quality of commercials than in Australia. They gave them away. They would just write them, free copy, free copy, we'll write your commercial for you, we'll voice it. You can voice it if you want to, Mr. Car Yard Owner, because that will make you want to hear your voice on the radio, And whereas in the UK, much more an opportunity to say, well, we can make money out of commercial production. So why would we give it away?
0: I really want to get onto the the Dirk and Judy show, which was a show that you, of course, was part of. I mean, how did you go from writing ads to then being on air?
1: I kept driving to the town where I had a, a gig to do some some DJ work. And then I just covered shifts. I mean, you know, the usual, everyone that's been in radio, what you do is you're available when somebody's sick and then you're just available. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. I then got, you know, the station was taken over by a, a metropolitan station. So a big Melbourne station bought the little station we had and and then we were introduced to audience research. And and I was pretty keen. Um, and so, you know, the powers of B could see this... Young guy who had a bit of a squeaky voice and probably wouldn't be the best DJ in the world, but he was really keen and had a go. And so I got the afternoon show, and I then did some music management and stuff like that. And then they could see Judy Ford, who was um, the nighttime host. Was she was a talent um, and she was a bit of a star. She was a sort of a lead singer in a band in in the town. I was pretty keen, so they put us together. As she was the star and I was the sort of the anchor, if you like, the sort of guy that made sure that. Everything went smoothly, but she was the one that talked to the listeners, and you know, I did the intros, the outros, um, did all the sort of workaday stuff, and she did the sort of the stuff that really made entertainment. And and over four years, that worked really, really well, and we became quite a uh, one of the early male female breakfast shows. Um, but and the reason I think that worked is because I was so keen to just get on breakfast radio, which is my favourite slot. I loved breakfast radio. I was just happy to be there. Um, And she was, and I was happy to say that she was the star. As long as I got some, you know, bathed in her glory, I was okay. Because we'll see where that ends up.
0: We're having a party. Oh yeah. From Australia. And this is, I'm really intrigued by this. that You then moved to Dublin. Yeah. How how did that even happen? Because you go to Dublin to be ops manager.
1: Um, We were bought by a Melbourne station called 3KZ and they were hugely successful. Um, They were making a fortune in revenues and they were very well, they just created this great business uh, and radio product. They had discovered audience research, which came out of New Zealand. New Zealand was the leader in the world in audience research, much more advanced than the US or anywhere else. Uh, And a guy called Bill Clemens and Peter Don were leaders in audience research, and uh, and that's where for um, those people who will hear the word research will go oh god, oh god. <laughs> but the idea was basically uh, in the in the, the and they brought audience research. So I could say I think we should play this song or we should play that song. Or we should do that. And of course, you know, no research is going to tell you which new song you should play because no one knows. So you've got to use your your instinct and your knowledge and just your experience to work. Out. I think this is a hit. You know, and Parky's always been very good at that. Um, Steve Orchard was very good at that as well. So many of the guys who were group PDs in the probably the 90s would just had a good ear for, for for picking songs. And what we had, I think, was an ability to then say, so are we playing this song too often or are we playing it not, not often enough? And, uh, you know, won't go into the details of how that was done because it was pretty rudimentary picking up the phone and, Looking at the phone book and then calling people saying, Do you like the song? Are you sick of it? And there was a process. And they, Bill Clemens and Peter Don, had defi- had created a software program, but they'd created a way of an algorithm that today everyone thinks it was an algorithm to be able to um, decide, to help us decide which songs are really powerful for us, which ones are not. You know, we had think nothing about Spotify serving us up songs that. It's it's exactly. But we were doing that 30 years ago in a rudimentary way rather than actually saying John Fox likes this song because he happens to love, you know, classic rock and you're on a heart station. It's actually saying this, I mean, the stuff that we just take for granted now, but we were bringing new thinking in and, and I was lucky enough to work with consultants very early days to learn how, how to use research to make decisions Whereas before I was just making decisions because I like this song, so I'm going to put it on the turntable. And if the dance floor emptied, then I was in deep (laughs) doo-doos, right? So you learn by, whereas, so asking the audience what they wanted was actually quite good together mixed with the art of what I thought might work as well. So the art of innovation together with let's just check what they think, which of course is, you know, all quite normal nowadays because we've got data to help us make those decisions and, and so um, these guys, um, Bill Clements and Peter Don from BPR, which is probably a name that a lot of people might remember as audio consultants, um, and they're still around, um, You know, very successful in Europe. Um, they were working with a radio station in Dublin and said, they're looking for a programmer because they're going to expand into Europe. Are you up for it? And I realised that I was doing okay pretty well in, in the market I was in. But it was really hard to break into. It's a bit like being in a Welsh radio station, because Tasmania is a lot like Wales, beautiful, um, but it's smaller, and trying to get to London. It's really hard to make that jump. And so I thought they needed somebody who understood audience research. I needed to work with a bigger train set. And so I decided to come over to the side of the world.
0: Well, two questions, Firstly, I mean, forgive my ignorance towards Australia. I would love to go there. Never been. Was it the norm? And I, I say this because my brother-in-law is a Kiwi and he's from a tiny little place called Timaru. And he came over here traveling and then my met my wife's sister and so on and so. On. But it, for him to leave Timaru is like, what the bloody hell is he doing? He's he's leaving the town? Was that the, was that the similar exactly kind same. of thing? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, to go to Dublin, exactly the same. Um, you know, when you live in that part of the world, it is a pretty cool. Um, it's small. Um, outside of the, the Sydney and Melbourne and those big big cities we all know, it was some time ago. It was the early nineties. Um, it was like, wow, you're going to you're going to Dublin. Of course, you know that part of the world. All you see on television is the troubles at the time. A lot of the troubles, and so really, and and you you only see what you see on the television. So, wow, you got to go to a place where there's. Bombs and of course, when I arrived there, you know there were. I was amazed as a, a kid out of Tasmania. I mean, I was in my sort of late twenties, going to um, work in Dublin. You go to the newsroom and you see if there is a a, a a bomb threat. Check against this code to see whether it's true, it's proper IRA. So it was real. It was real, and so it's a long way to the city centre, Dublin, which was amazing um, from. Yeah, you know, Launceston, Tasmania. That's a that's a big shift.
0: Yeah, such a young age as well.
1: Well, I don't know. You know, I thought I was pretty old, sort of, sort of mid late twenties. But I can tell you, that my there was a lot of twitching going on in my body at the time.
0: <laughs> the, the other question I have was, I just wondered at what point you went from wanting to be a presenter to to wanting to be in management.
1: I I gotta say, it's 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 a good question been asked, that. and I and I had to. You know, as I was working with managers in my career um, here, I thought I would be okay as a presenter, but I realized, and as soon as I came to this side of the world, you know, putting an Australian accent on the ears, like, why would you do that? That's a dumb idea. And why would you put mine on? It's an even dumber idea. I think I always knew I was reasonably good at organizing things, and also I wanted to be in charge. I was really happy, you know telling people what to do. You know my parents are Dutch, grew up in Australia. I'm pretty good at telling people what to do. Um <laughs> I've got a little better at uh, working in a different way, but that's for later maybe. Um but I I just liked organizing things and I did like being, oh, let's go and do this. Let's go. So I and I realized that um maybe I'll go back to it, but it's a, it's a guilty pleasure. I would be on the air now if I could have a great producer and somebody would give me a slot, but You know, that's never happened and it's unlikely to.
0: Well, never say never, never say never. So uh, you moved to Dublin, um, you're at 98 FM and you you helped to take it to number one. And am I right in thinking that that station to get to number one was really punching above its weight?
1: The credit's got to go to Dennis O'Brien and Jeff O'Brien because they... They, you know, you don't go to number one, and it did go to number one for a quarter. And you know, we'd all would also, there may be an anomaly in the in the numbers, but you know, you take it when you get it because you know, when it goes the other way, then you you know, you don't you got to take that as well. So that was down to years of of effort and hard work, and I learned a lot at ninety eight. I learned a lot from Dennis O'Brien. I learned a lot from Jeff O'Brien, um, who's still a very good mate of mine. And it's just like you treat the listeners with absolute. Respect, Jeff was an Aussie guy um, and he he would just say, you know, the the listeners are, you know, they're the most important, you know, you don't call them prize pigs, you don't call me, they are absolutely the most important people until they complain and get to his phone and the receptionist puts it through to him and they, a listener says something bad and he stands up and said, well, if you don't fucking like it, go and listen <laughs> to somebody else. But outside of that, listeners were absolutely number one.
0: And whilst you're amongst all these people, which, you know, I, I get the impression you you rate and you respect greatly, were you just picking up ideas and ways to manage from all of these people?
1: I think, obviously, you learn a lot what not to do. Where I learned to manage was when I came to the UK. I think uh, Steve Orchard, I learned a lot from him. He's uh, He was uh, had a very unique style. And so I think from what I learned from Dennis and Jeff at 98FM in Dublin, 98 FM, fabulous. And all the people I worked with there, what I learned from those, from Dennis particularly and Jeff, was you just don't take no for an answer. It was just like, fuck you, we're going to win. You know, you 2 played in Dublin at um, one of the big grounds, I can't remember which one it was, and 2FM had the sponsorship. And we um, we just said, we just put on the air... um, 98 FM welcomes you two to Dublin. And we didn't pay any money for the sponsorship. And then uh, we just put out all the stops and put put as many promotional people and, and blitzed the city with logos of 98 FM around the ground and and just to any listener would be oh 98 FM are associated with this. Just and that attitude, that mindset of winning was I learned that from there.
0: So you, you've mentioned Steve Orchard because after 98FM, you, you, you come over here um, and you become, you get a programmer job at GWR Bristol. Uh, did, did you know Steve Orchard? I mean, there's a, there's a name which, you know, I, I, I used to like his, his smiley face as he used to come into 210FM. <laughs> he, he had a lovely smile, did Steve
1: Orchard. But did you know Steve before then? Well, the connection was um, we met at a conference about audience research which was held by BPR, the, the the consultancy firm. And we met in Liverpool by that stage. And it took me about six months to get him to say, oh, yeah, yeah really, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I said, I want to come over to the UK. I, I, you know, I want to come over to the UK. And so I pestered him and I really, really pestered him. Give me a job, give me a job, give me a job. I, 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 can, I can really help you. I hadn't realised just how tight they were on on spending money because they'd not had a program controller at that stage, and this is 1993, they'd not had a program controller who wasn't a presenter at the same time because, oh. because these the, the businesses weren't making money. You've got to remember these were commercial radio stations that were, were struggling to get advertisers to really use radio the way that we knew it was effective. And it was it just come out of a recession. You know, it was a recession in the late 80s and 90s. So it was a really tough time.
0: I just want to talk about GWR Bristol because you go there as, as programmer. Is it, is it true, Dirk, that they, they hadn't told the former PD that you'd got the job and you just turned up? Is that true?
1: You're very good. I'm so glad you've done this research because you're remembering what I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah, they hadn't. So I was in a little village outside of Bristol and I was ready to go. My partner and I were there, Michelle and I were there, ready to go. And um, the 4th of January, 1994, and I got a call from Simon Cooper, who was the manager there, said, well, Dirk, and Simon's got a very, very posh accent, Well, to me at the time, fresh off the boat. Yeah, I'm terribly sorry, but don't think it's probably right for you to come in yet. So I, I had to wait for about two days before I could arrive because they hadn't told the incumbent um, that I was coming in. That must have been so awkward when you eventually arrive. Well, do you know, to be fair, John, I, I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I was so focused on, this is a great, I'm going to I'm going to make this work. This is a great opportunity. I used to run through that building. And the, the PA that I ended up having, uh, the EA, Joe Hewitt, and she said, you know, you used to run around. We thought you were a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe.
0: you know blame me? I've not I remember her name um, from yeah. my time. Yeah, blame me. We're it back all the memories. Uh, was it at this point? I mean, we we need to at some point talk about the Bible, which is something which, you know, a lot of people talk about. Was it at this point when you start started to devise the Bible?
1: I can tell you exactly how that happened. Um so I arrived there, and about three months later, you know, sort of outside of my world, but uh, Ralph and Steve and the board had bought um, Trent FM and the radio stations in that part of the world. Steve was up there doing doing his bit. Sort of, uh, he was the group program director. I was the program controller of GWR in Bristol. But I got some experience, and I, I was probably, well, I was more experienced than most of the other guys, um, which doesn't say a lot because it wasn't hugely. Uh, but I had, you know, I did have research experience and I had sort of format radio experience and I had competitive radio experience, which isn't is something that's inside you as much as it is just the process. And um, and so, do you want to come up and give us a hand? Yeah, sure. And I met Dick Stone and Rob Wagstaff and all the guys up there. And of course, I'm relatively uncouth at that stage. Um, and so, so Okay, um I'm sort of going you know linear um we're here and you want to get to there okay we'll do this um sensitivity yeah there I don't think I'm a nice guy but you know and what I learned from that experience was um well actually I don't let me just digress one second at the same time around about that time I uh, was introduced to a guy called William Pike and Patrick quark who had a radio station in Uganda and they were, a connection through Dennis O'Brien in Dublin. And they and I went to Uganda to work on a radio station there. And Steve Orchard was very generous and kind And said, of course, you know, if you're going to do some work, it'll just help you. It'll, all this stuff's good life experience and learning. And I sat in both Nottingham and in um, in, in this station in Uganda called Capital Radio and went, I'm telling them. So I, I wrote what they needed to say between each link. So I started writing because mm-hmm. I couldn't get what I was saying. Well, you got to do this, they? and I and I thought, bloody hell! If, I, if they if they don't know what to say when they need to say it and how they need to say it, why don't I just write it down and I'll put it into a book and make it really easy for them to understand? That's all it was—just to understand. Because clearly, I wasn't very clever in getting it across. And so I thought, well, if I'm doing that here, why don't I do that in GWR? So then I went back to my own radio station and I wrote a I wrote. And uh, what we call lovingly the Bible, um, uh, which, of course, has been the, the mickey has been taken out of for many years afterwards. Well, I was going
0: to ask, do you regret calling it the Bible?
1: No, not at all. Because no. <laughs> it doesn't really matter too much. I mean, you know, I, I spent plenty of years with a very religious family of the Bible. So it was a bit of a euphemism. No, I don't. I think the what I probably regret is my and I still do this now in the work I do now, I, I you know, I tend to think you've got to learn how to ride a bike and learn how to drive a car absolutely properly by the book, so that you can be free to just explore afterwards. Once you got, once you know how to do it properly, then you can just be free to go anywhere. So my thing was, if you know how to, if you know how to say the station name and what we stand for, because you've got to remember, people just started to turn the mic on and talk, said their name more than they said anything else. You know, so you're in a you're in a in a situation where your livelihood depends on re- revenue and that depends on whether people can remember which station they listen to and you've got radio 1 saying their name often enough and they can't remember where they listen to Kylie Minogue on GWR or whether they listen to it on radio 1 and that's just simply the facts of the situation it wasn't like I know the answer to all the problems of radio in the UK, but simply, uh, you know, a little bit of logic of we're in a business where people, listeners, people who've got families, who've got more importance to things to think about than a, than a radio station or a presenter or a song, they turn the radio on and they just go, mm, I like Kylie Minogue or I like this or I like Depeche Mode or I like REM or whatever it was at the time. And, and then they go, and then they get a diary into their hands going, um, which station you listen to? Well, which one do you think is going to win? Radio 1, Radio 2, well, not so much Radio 2 then. And then you've got this, this commercial radio station called GWR or 210 or any of the BRMB or any of the others um, around the country trying so hard to, to be remembered. And you've got presenters who won't say the name of the station.
0: I guess when, as GWR grew, you acquired more egos because I I would argue with any... presenter. I've only got one ego, John. I've only got one ego. No, no. I'm talking about the presenters. (laughs) I'm I'm talking about presenters. And I think it's, you know, I would argue with any presenter who said they didn't have an ego. We've all got at some level as an ego. So you're acquiring more and more stations and then you're trying to make, I mean... It surprises me that some people wouldn't say the radio station name, but maybe that's because my career where that was always drummed into my head, say the radio station, the, the time check, et cetera, et cetera. It was always called the nuts and bolts at EMAP. You know, do that, it's important to get the tick in the diary. So well, it, it surprises me that some people weren't doing that. But I guess the point I'm trying to get to is as you acquired more stations, did it become more frustrating or, I mean, it must be it must have become more st- stressful
1: to, I to think manage I think there's two things that happen. Um, one is that I there's a real period where we got to certain, we got to six or seven stations, and I realized that my way of managing was not going to survive because I was in I was controlling everything. I wrote the Bible, I did the jingles, I did everything. I did the sweepers, I did everything. And that worked for a period of time. Um now remember, we're in twenty twenty four now and I've had a lot of life between that time and now and I can give you a very succinct and clear example of or articulation of what that all happened but the reality was I really wanted to be successful I wanted it to work for everyone I, we all really like working together we had a good camaraderie you know if you talk to some of the people in those early days of four and five stations um you know 210, 2CR yeah GWR Bristol's uh, Swindon, you know, there was there were, of course there were sort of little bits of rivalry between all of us. But ultimately, um, there was a certainly in the in the in the group guys, there was a sense of, hmm, we've got an opportunity here, let's go and see where this goes. And I I am very happy to have said before that my management style was very much direct and clear. Now that worked for some people didn't work for others. Um and I wish that I had been more sensitive to um, impact of words and things like that. But, you know, um, I, I don't regret it because you can't regret because I don't think that's really helpful or healthy. But I do think that, you know, um, I wish I had, I wish I knew then what I know now. Of course, don't we all? Um, I'm sure you do as well. I we wish I knew then. What I what I do think is sometimes you've got to be a bit, you know, I think there's some benefit in being a bit naive you know, I did a master's in 2014. I was in my, you know, I won't say how old I was, but I was older. And um, and I had no idea what a master's was. And I came back home and said, I'm going to do a master's. And my wife said, um, do you know what a master's is? I had no idea. And I think at that time, I didn't have any idea. All I knew was we wanted to win and we wanted to beat Radio 1 and the BBC and we wanted to see what could happen. I think one thing that did never change is, I, you know, there's a sense of um, wanting everyone to be successful.
0: I hope you don't mind me asking this question. You mentioned not regretting anything. And, and there's so much more to your career, which we'll get onto in a second. But I, And, and this, can, this question can, you know, be for...
1: You can ask any question you, you like. Go for your life. Have you ever
0: said sorry to anybody?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Many times. Uh, so if there's a particular
0: one that you think I should say sorry to you. No, 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 absolutely. I'm just, I'm just thinking, and this isn't um, anything to do with the Bible or your style of management, but when you're at your level as you were, when you were the group, you know, the, the head honcho, so to speak, then it would be the same for anybody. I'm sure yeah, Richard yeah. Park, it would Mark yeah. Storey, all of the yeah, people at yeah. that level, you know, have you have you ever felt the need to reflect and go, oh, I'm sorry?
1: Oh God, yeah. Oh, they're out of, and I'm sure... I'm sure Mark Storey and Richard Park would say the same thing. Of course you would, of course. If there was a dumb thing said or a insensitive, absolutely. Um, it would be pretty bloody sad if that wasn't, a, if there wasn't a case. And, you know, there are will be lots of occasions where things have happened that I don't even realise. And then there are lots of occasions where there will be equal parts of if somebody came up to me and said, I just heard you and this happened to me and I feel really sort of shitty about that, I'd say, I am really sorry that you felt shitty about that. And if I played a role through ignorance or arrogance or whatever, I, the first response would be, I'm really sorry about that. I'd be very healthy and happy to say, okay, what's your role in that too? I don't, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. However,
1: first response would be, second response is, um, is actually that I know that. I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin to know that the intent always was honourable. Um, and that's one thing I am really sure about. So if I've if I've screwed up and been insensitive, that you will always get an apology. But the one thing um, I'm really clear about, even making mistakes, is that the intent was always honourable.
0: Is this going out or is it just in our headphones? Hamster's <laughs> <I'm, it's> fine. <laughs> it's a technical problem. You heard something on air you shouldn't have done. Oh, yeah. Let's move on to GCAP. So the GCAP merger, were you happy when that happened or or not?
1: Yeah, I well, was I happy? Yes, because um, we worked, all of us had worked so hard for so long to grow a, a, a big business. Um, the bigger we got, the more we could pay people, and, you know, <laughs> as much as that might sound, really? Yeah. Um, the more we could all become successful. Uh, and I can't tell you how many conversations I had with somebody saying, I'm on 25 grand a year, I'd like to get to 50. I say, I'm telling you, I would like you to get to 50 as well. What are we going to do to get there? And that is uh, that is something that I, I learned through my years of coaching, and which is something that we introduced very early with a guy called Viv Miles um, into GWR, which many people who are listening to this will remember that. You know, what's the outcome we're looking for? What's well, less well, what are the options, yada yada yada, all that stuff, which changed the way we did. It, Snoops and the the, the managers, that coaches did that well, did that brilliantly. Um, that was a big shift when we got so big um, from command and control to trying to sort of bring in a coaching culture. Um, you might remember or see bits of it, you may not. Um, but I think that um, we worked hard to get to that point. We made many, many decisions, years and years and years of planning and working. We had to get good results for us to be able to merge be able to, to be able to buy and become a big radio group. There are plenty of things about the process of that and about the way it went about that. You go, was that the optimal way of doing it? But the idea of bringing the two companies together, absolutely, I was really happy about that.
0: I'm guessing it was a clash of two very different cultures though, wasn't it? Was
1: it was yeah. it hard to, to bring together? Well, it took six months when we first came together because it was a fudge. Like, <laughs> <Okay>. like, <laughs> Uh, in the sense that, um, you know, how do you make, I mean, you know, the world is full of, there's announcements recently about, you know, how you make um, governments work together, how you make how you make things come together. And um, and I do remember having conversations saying, this is a fudge, this is a fudge. And, um, and my dearest colleagues would say, yeah, I know, but, you know, if you want this to happen, then it's what we might need to do. And my, and I suppose I'm more, I suppose I'd, I'd like to think a bit more mature now to see that. I may not have agreed with some of the decisions of how, what we had to do to get there, but in the end, we had six months of trying to have two of everything, you know, two CEOs, well, two types of CEOs, two two group program directors, um, two this, two that. Um, and it was hard for all of us, to be fair, to make yeah. it work. Um but we all tried our best for 6 months and then in the end you know a, another event happened and and then we sort of the GWR managers you know took responsibility for the business
0: why the capital group and not sorry you know why, why um, the capital group to merge with rather than emap or you know
1: uh, i think there was a more of a regulatory um we were able we were more discreet um it meant London, and clearly that was going to be better for business. We were probably um southern part of the country. There was just more synergies to be able to be had. It was obviously the big prize capital radio that everyone still wanted. So I think it was more doable. It was it made more logical sense. And I think from a regulatory point of view, that was going to be easier for us to do. And, you know, if, we, if EMAP and GWR got together, um, and this is just from my perspective, by the way, if EMAP and GWR got together, we'd still have the whole chunk of the UK that we needed to take.
0: Very true, yeah. What was it like finally getting your hands on capital?
1: Well, some of the stories I'm not going to tell you on this podcast because um, they're reserved for a few a few people in a pub going, really? One of the things that I think probably it's worth remembering is that it was also 2005 leading into the global financial crisis, so I think I think as much as we like to think we're amazing, um, we we didn't take advantage. We weren't able to take advantage of the way the, the world was. Um, the world was getting nervous. Marketing budgets were being squeezed. Um, and, you know, 2005, 2006, and we had some great times, but um, I think the market from a commercial point of view said, well, you've got two, these two big big uh, radio companies coming together, and we're going to then merge all of our spend with you. So we're spending this much with you, this much with you. We expect a discount. So two plus two equals less than four equals three from a revenue point of view. Well, we're giving you all of our money, so you better give us a discount. Uh, So there's a a bunch of stuff around that. Um, Capital was very expensive to run, um, and there were a lot of radio stations that were making more profit than capital. But it was the it was the one that everyone that all the investors looked at you know we brought Scott Muller over from um Australia who is probably the I would say the Elon Musk of radio he's got a, a the brain the size of a planet knows what needs to be put together was able to do some things that were amazing but you know I think there's you know, it was a, like most of the radio, big radio stations in the UK, the big heritage stations, you know, there was a lot of pressure on, a lot of pressure. So um, it was tough. It was really hard. And I think um, one of the things that I wonder about is I was group program director, we brought Scott in, and the question I have, I've I've asked, often asked myself is what would happen if I'd have given up the group program director's job and taken on the capital program controller's job?
0: Why did you never do that?
1: Um, mm, um, Because, mm, I I don't know if I want to answer that question. Um, That one I might keep to myself.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, we're all thinking different things now, Dirk. Yeah, exactly. Well,
1: that's part of the plan. Um, No, I think think that what I would want to have done, I doubt I I would have been allowed to. Right, okay. Just it and that's not anyone you know just it's just like what you the strategy you know that happens a lot you know I believe we should do this and somebody says I don't think we should and you know the more senior people will win on that um I you know I I worked so closely for 15 years with with my colleagues um it wasn't about hierarchy it was more about they just didn't probably buy the the thing that I had and I just Maybe I didn't have enough courage maybe you could say well if I had pushed harder and just said right go for it so there's a there's a real challenge to myself about you know if I if I'd have had to you know should I have shown more courage possibly um and you know it's just it's it's an interesting thing to think about but it's happened and um do I have a regret not really um but I think there's certainly something you know, careful what you wish for. Uh, I used to look at Parky thinking, man, that guy's got such a great job up there. And I had his job for three years and went, "Mm, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now let's move on to your departure from GCAP. How was that?
1: Well, I think it was pretty clear it was coming for a long time. Um, And I think by then we had a real culture of, you know, there was, you know, the financials were fine. Uh, yeah, we were we were financially going to be okay, whatever happened. And I think there was a bit of maturity around, you get to that stage and you go, you know how this stuff's going to work. Uh, Ralph had resigned. Um, there was a conversation between Fru and Steve as who was going to become CEO. Um, you know, Richard Eyre was the chair, so it was probably likely that was going to get the gig and you could see all that. And I would have been happy to work for Fru, but she just, you know, she had a, and everyone has a different strategy. You know, she want, she wanted to have her own people in. So she called Paul Jackson in because that was the guy that, you know, her programming guy that she'd worked with before. So you kind of knew it was going to happen. And and she said, you know, you know, when, when she got the CEO's job, you know, it wasn't a few weeks later, let's have a conversation and you go, well, you know, I could have worked with you through, that's fine, but, you know, I get it, I understand, that's okay, that's fine, and we just come to an amicable ag- agreement. I think there's a level of, you just, I think there's a bit of maturity around it, and I quite like the fact that we could have the conversation and go, well, okay, I, you know, that's your call, and... um and in the end, I was really happy because she um, she fought the takeover from Global and kept the share price going up for the takeover and, and my share options did a little bit better than they would have done had she not done that. So I'm very thankful to Fruit.
0: Which <laughs> is why you're drinking the expensive white wine. Though. Well, no, it's a very
1: cheap white wine job. Oh, is it? Yes. yes. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> now, after GCAP, you go back to, to Oz for a bit. Yep. Um, do, do you work on television over there?
1: I did. I worked, um, well, my my friends in television, I worked for the Equivalent of Channel 4 there. It was a fantastic job. I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, the pain of leaving here from Bristol and selling up and going there was tough, and we had two small kids and two redundancy checks, my wife and I um, at the time, and and the kids. So it was really hard. We had no job to go to, no job prospects here. You know, the whole industry is two thousand and eight two thousand and nine the you know the global financial crisis you know you know everything was getting smaller and smaller and smaller um it was really tough um so we sold up and went to Australia with no jobs thinking well there's, there's I'm gonna get a job in radio here let's see what happens there and I got a job at the equivalent of, uh channel four SBS and it was, it was fantastic. I mean, it was really, really a bit like community radio, to be fair. Um, it was um, 200 journalists working on 67 language programs, um, mm. You know, one, two-hour shows each, um, and I learned an enormous amount about public service broadcasting, working with uh, journalists, working with lots and lots of different people about... Um, I got to work with unions. Uh, it was just a great job. And uh, together with my colleagues, Trevor Long and and a bunch of other guys, Mark Cummins and some other people there um, who were fabulous, fabulous, and we discovered um, K-pop. Uh, we in, introduced a, a, a new digital radio station. They had a budget of It's going to take us a million dollars to start this uh, any pop music radio station on DAB, which is why we're not doing it. And I said, I reckon we could probably do it for about 50K. <laughs> so <laughs> well, having learned here in the UK and having yeah. technology to be able to do it. And so we launched um, a K-pop radio station, you know, in 2011. And of course it's blown up around the world now, K-pop, um, SBS Arabic radio, pop Desi, and we really helped build a, um, an SBS chill uh, which was a direct descendant from here so we had a, a, we had a great time um, and there was a real benefit of not needing to be profitable just needing to make sure that you use the money wisely taxpayers money wisely it was good it's a great job I loved it
0: And then you you come back to the UK yeah where you now run a consultancy business Tell me a bit about what you're doing now.
1: So um, we came back here and the reasons for that, sort of not that important, but we came back here three years later for family reasons, um, and that is important um, because that was a great job and I, I really didn't want to leave that. But we came back here again with no job um, and it was family reasons that sort of drove that. Um, so, you know, quite, you know, quite personal, quite important, um, and we decided to come to Oxford um, as to sort of a new start, put a pin in the map, right, but let's go here. Kids are a bit older. Let's start. And um, I realized that I actually didn't want to get back into radio. Um, and Francis Curry was an absolute diamond for those years and do you know about ten, eleven years ago where he used to meet me for lunch. Every two or three months, say, yo, oh, you should go back. You Dirk, there are there's lots of business out there for you as a as a radio consultant. I said, No, Francis, I don't want to compete against you and Paul Chandler and every other bugger that's out there trying to, you know, <laughs> I was being really depressive. And he said, Okay, if you got a fixed mindset, Dirk. So um he was very, very generous for a long time to help me just get started. Cause I was it was a bit of a tough place, to be honest. I didn't know what I was gonna do. And um, and then I got a job um in a packaging company, um, called involvement packaging. Um, and I sat in a, I sat in a warehouse with forklifts flying around going, I used to go to the Brits. I used to go to the Brits. And, um, and I applied, um, all the things I learned in radio and radio management and working with people and humans into working with that company, um, and so I started. Um, I just started. I started. I did start hawking out as a. You know, I did some work with the BBC, as we all do. <laughs> and uh, I did bits and pieces here and there. And in the end, I realised that um, I just needed to transition and change from being a radio guy to being something more. Uh, or some, you know, and taking all the radio knowledge with me. And for people who are in radio, and there's so many in the last three, four, five years who've exited radio. And you know, you see on you know. Um, you got transferable skills. I can't tell you how true that statement is. Yeah, transferable absolutely. skills, um, and anyone in radio that wants somebody to talk to you about that, you are free to call to call me to email me, and I will have a conversation with you about what's possible. Um, coaching conversation. I won't tell you what to do, um, <laughs> um, and I'm happy to do that because um, I'll pay that one forward because it's so true. Um, and so many people said that to me before, and I didn't believe it. So, um, and I've spent the last 10 years building a coaching business. So I work, um, my, you know, I suppose my why, I stole this from Simon Senek, I help people get people and companies, organisations and teams get to where they want to go faster. And, you know, that presupposes they're going to get there anyway. Just going to, and how I do that is just helping them, helping them think differently. And so I do executive coaching, team coaching, you know, strategic planning, you know, performance management, all that good stuff that I would do in a, in a job, but um, it's all about the audience. And so when I talk to them about staff or people or customers, you know, I use the word audience just to say, you know, what do they want? And and so my radio career has been instrumental in helping me. But the big shift was I retrained. I, you know, invested I did a master's in coaching and behavioural change, quite keen on the psychology. And so if I have a regret about the past, management is – I wish I'd have understood psychology more than probably I did then, as I do now.
0: Oh, yeah. There, there are many people, not just on on Crunch and Roll on their episode, but j- just in UK radio in general, have said those bloody Aussies.
1: Yeah.
0: Why? Why do you think people have this, this, this unhealthy hatred of the Aussies coming up oh, here? Uh,
1: unhealthy <laughs> hatred? I don't know what you're talking about. I, yeah, I think that it's um it's fair. It's fair. Because um, you know, I, I you know in other parts of the world that I've worked in, I've worked in lots of different countries in the world, you know, somebody comes in who's not from your tribe um and they start saying, This is what we're gonna do, mate, um, whatever accent they've got, whether you're from Newcastle coming into London or you're from London going to Newcastle. Um, you're going to have that response. It's a human response. So I think it's absolutely fair, completely understandable. And some of us were just um, ignorant of the impact of our words on others. Um, And perhaps we could have shown a bit more humanity in the way we were doing things. And I say we, I mean me. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And it always makes me laugh when somebody says the bloody Aussies because it, uh, it kind of creates this image in your head where you all came over at the same time, yeah, exactly. on the same plane. <laughs> We're here,
1: kind <laughs> of thing. But obviously, it didn't. But, it didn't happen w- like that. I would say, I would say, um, you know, I've I've given myself a good caning um, uh, and, and flaying, but I would say on the other side that. Um, I I really have appreciated lots of people who've said lots and lots and lots of people, including the ones that at the time were saying "you bastard," um, come back and said, "I get it, I get it, I get it." I see, I can see because I've got I've got a better perspective because I've got some reflection. I've, I've seen different life, so I can see different perspectives, and it, you know that's the benefit of growing older and wiser. But um, and I think that's you know that was then, this is now. I, I'm quite a fan of what Global are doing. I'm, you know, I just think fantastic. You know, that's just amazing what they've done. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I know, I know what Anorex will say. It's, and I, and I know that, you know, being local, you know, I get, I get, it. I get it all completely, but it's okay.
0: Your answer cannot be, it's a bit like asking me who my favorite child is, but who was your, which was your favorite station?
1: Oh, I think, um, I think it would have to be, have to be GWR in Bristol, GWR FM in Bristol. I think that was a that was the fun stuff. Um, I was really really proud of what the guys did at Trent FM because that was kind of like that. That was the one where we we knew we kind of knew what we were doing. Um, so that was that that was quite quite good. Um, But I think the best night of all is we had a Sony's night and Trevor Marshall got up on stage and won a gold Logie. uh, The old Sony, we had a a really good year. Um, So there's so many examples, but I think GWR would be the one that I sort of started with in this country.
0: Just one final question, Dirk. Do you regret not putting me on capital?
1: I absolutely regret that, John. I have no (laughs) idea what was going on. Clearly, clearly I have a problem, had a problem. And if I had my time
0: over again, you know. <laughs> oh, he gets out of that one. Well, look, um, Dirk. Thank you so much for being on Crunch and Roll. It's been it's been brilliant. To, to I haven't seen you for. I think I, I've talked about it a couple of times. I think the last time I physically saw you, we had breakfast together at one of the boot camps. Yeah. A hotel, which was was outside Bristol, was it? I can't remember now. Blimey, it was so long ago. Uh,
1: yeah, I think it was. It was yeah, one of those big mansion houses.
0: But no, thank you so much for for agreeing to coming on uh, and chatting about your career. It's been brilliant.
1: I appreciate it. Um, I hope that um, it's been interesting because it doesn't sound like it to me. But there you go.
0: <laughs> Honestly, every single guest has said exactly the same. Yeah exactly would you like to go back to Dirk and Judy and please in the style of that breakfast show read the outro
1: well I I will I've got to make sure I get Simon's name right because it's really important I've heard so many people do this you'd be listening to crunch and roll with me Dirk Anthony subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get every new episode as soon as they drop, and you don't have to because it's asynchronous. I mean, who cares, really? Brunch and Roll is a 969 media production presented by John Fox and produced by the irrepressible Simon Borzowski. Oh, yeah.
0: I do have that final question, which I did write down, which we do need to know the answer to, but the, the surname?
1: I was born Dirk Anthony Posthumous. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine growing up in rural Australia with a surname like Posthumous.
0: I see why you changed it. Thank you. <laughs>